Welcome to the Real Estate Syndication Show. Whether you are a seasoned investor or building a new real estate business, this is the show for you. Whitney Sewell talks to top experts in the business. Our goal is to help you master real estate syndication. And now your host, Whitney Sewell. This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, our guest is Amy Wan. Thanks for being on the show, Amy. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Yeah, Amy is the founder and CEO of Bootstrap Legal, which I'm sure you already know because you've heard her many times on the show now, and as she's graciously taking the time to explain many important topics to us uh, on the legal side of this business that are so important. Amy, what is it today we're going to talk about? Yeah, today we're talking about basically fees that you can charge and how you structure your distributions. That's awesome. So get us started with the fees and things we should consider when we're doing this syndication. Sure. So a lot of times when syndicators are they're putting together their offering, they don't get paid up front from distributions, right? That's earned through the lifetime of the actual project. And so they will charge certain fees. So there's a lot of different fees that you can charge. Sometimes I have clients who they make up a new fee, right? Like I've had people make up like, oh, construction fee, because they're actually managing the construction themselves or something like that. But there are a number of standard fees that are customary to charge so that you can get compensation as you're entering into the deal, right? And so I'm just going to go through a couple of those. So the first one, by far the most common, is the organization and due diligence fee. So a lot of people sometimes also call this the acquisition fee. It's basically the same thing. It's a fee that is charged once on the purchase of each property. And then it usually ranges somewhere between 1% to 3% of the purchase price of the property. And the sponsor usually earns this fee at the close of escrow on the acquisition of the property, right? The justification for this fee is that it compensates the sponsor for their efforts in basically conducting due diligence on the property and making the investment opportunity available to investors. So this is probably the most common upfront fee I see across all different deals. The second one is the asset management fee. So the asset management fee basically compensates the sponsor for his or her efforts in oversight and management of the company and property during the course of the investment. Typically, sponsors will charge somewhere between 1% to 2% of the gross revenue collected from the property that's earned monthly. And so this is a recurring fee, usually done annually. The third one is actually a fee that may or may not be charged by the sponsor themselves. It's a property management fee, right? So it's a recurring monthly fee that's basically paid to a third-party property manager that will provide all the property management services. Now, sometimes syndicators also end up being the property manager. So in that case, it would be basically paid to them or their affiliate. So this fee is collected during property operations and capital improvements. And the amount is whatever is market with local rates for such services. So if you're using a third party, it's whatever they're charging you. If the sponsor is managing the property themselves or through a very close affiliate, then it will be whatever rate is standard in that particular geographic location. The next one is a fee that you can get whenever you are working with loans, right? It's called a debt placement fee. 
Now, I want to make sure that we distinguish this from a loan brokering fee. A loan brokering fee is when you are going out and helping get the loan, but you are licensed as a loan broker. And a lot of people are not. And so we call it a debt placement fee because the debt placement fee is based, by the way, sometimes called like a finance consulting fee or something like that. Basically, compensates a sponsor for his or her efforts in actually doing all the work to actually go out and find and obtain the original financing for the property. I know you had mentioned it maybe in an earlier episode too, depending on the sponsor's track record, they may be able to get a lot better financing because of their experience and track record. And I feel like that hasn't come easy. Yeah, exactly. So you're reimbursing them for that experience and the time taken to to make the financing happen. Right. And oftentimes I find that syndicators, they're always networking for investors, but they're also always networking for loan providers, right? Different ones, because sometimes this provider can give them the best rate, but the project won't qualify for their underwriting. So they go to this person. So they're, they're always bouncing between like a bunch of different lenders, right? So that is definitely a lot of time and networking on the part of the sponsor. So the debt placement fee, it's also one-time fee. It's usually 1% of the original purchase price of the property, or it can be for the loan amount. The fee is earned upon the lender granting initial financing of the property. Okay. Now, the next one is what we call a loan. And by the way, I'm talking about a lot of fees here. You should not, and you probably don't want to charge every single one of them (laughs) because then like your investors would never make any money. Basically people tend to pick and choose, right? Like they usually always have the first one I mentioned, the acquisition due diligence fee. The first three are the most popular. And then all the ones I'm talking about right now, they're less popular, but they do exist, right? The first three are definitely the ones I hear of the most, but I was going to ask you about the the debt placement fee. I think you said it's it's earned upon, I mean, when the financing is granted initially. Yeah. But what about like a refinance at three years? If I had a bridge loan? Ah, we will get to that. We're talking about a lot of different loan fees. So next one is the loan guarantee fee, right? Sometimes you are not able to find a loan that is non-recourse. They want someone to provide a personal guarantee. And sometimes the sponsor does not have the personal financial ability to be able to personally guarantee that, or they just don't want to, right? So the sponsor will go out and find someone else to come in on the deal with them and provide that personal guarantee. So the loan guarantee fee is paid to the person who provides personal guarantee for the purchase money loan to the extent required by the lender, of course. It's also a one-time fee. It ranges between 1% to 3% of the loan amount. I would say in the vast majority of cases, it's probably like 2 to 2.5%. And it's earned when the loan is made. Okay, so the next one is what you were talking about earlier, the refinance fee, right? The sponsor may earn a refinance fee as compensation to the sponsor for basically their efforts in going about and getting refinancing for the property. This is a one-time fee. It's usually between 0.5 to 1% of the new loan amount, and it's earned on the origination date of the new loan. And if you're not refinancing, there's another fee. It's called a disposition fee, right? So... That is also a one-time fee that basically compensates the sponsor for basically their efforts in marketing the property or the properties for sale. 
It's usually 1% to 3% of the sale price of the property, and it is earned upon the sale of the property. Now, for those of you out there who you're syndicating a property that is in the same state where you actually have a real estate broker or salesperson's license, some of them also want to take a commission off the acquisition, so the initial purchase or the sale of the property that they're also planning to syndicate. And that's perfectly fine. You can charge the market rate for it. Most important thing though, is you have to disclose this to your investors, right? So it should be in your legal documents and obviously don't charge a crazy amount. It should be whatever is commensurate with the local market. The next one is expense reimbursements and not so much a fee as it is making sure that the sponsor is reimbursed for everything out of their pocket, right? It has to do with the deal. When a sponsor is doing real estate syndication, there's a number of expenses that have to come out of their pocket personally before they ever get very far down the road, right? And so that's probably entity formation, attorney fees, due diligence costs, maybe you know travel costs to actually go see the property to make sure it's kosher and that they definitely want to do the deal. So these are all fees that the sponsor will probably have to advance personally. And so when they actually do go out and decide to go forward with the deal and syndicate the project, they can basically get their out-of-pocket expenses reimbursed upon startup of the company and throughout the lifetime of the project. The last one, and again, like this is not every single fee in the world out there, but I'm talking about the most popular one, right? So the last one I want to mention is to the extent that there are deferred fees or the manager has to advance funds for any reason, whether it's for these incidental expenses or because, I don't know, maybe the project is going sideways, you have construction cost overruns, stuff like that, and they can't find a loan or or something like that. There is interest that the manager can charge on deferred fees and manager advances. And so market rate for this is typically 10%, but I have had clients request to, because sometimes investors, especially for beginning syndicators, they'll push back against this, or if there's not a lot of trust, they'll say, oh, well, what if you just defer every fee and you're charging me 10% on this stuff? That That's terrible, right? And so sometimes I'll have to, investors, syndicators ask me to push this fee down to either a no interest, 0% interest, or even 3% or something like that. But market on most deals is about 10. And so the only thing I'll say about this is when a project gets into that certain situation where it's looking like they have to do some sort of capital call or something like that, your legal documents should talk about what's the order of people you should be looking at for money from, right? And typically it's like, go get a loan, go maybe ask investor for a side loan. Maybe the manager advances it if they can. And if that's truly not something that can happen, then we go to capital calls, right? Capital calls aren't on every deal, but it does happen sometimes. So those are all the fees I wanted to talk about. Do you want to just do you have a question? Do you want to... No, that's good. And some of them I don't hear about as much, but I mean I know they're out there. But I feel like if you if you put all these fees in your deal, investors are gonna go somewhere else. 
Yeah, yeah. You're not going to put every single fee. You're only going to put a couple. Yeah, I think you have to pick and choose. And and I'm sure even those that operators that are doing many deals kind of get in a groove of this is how we charge like a couple specific fees or the first three that we talked about. And, and right. the rest is just part of the business. Right. I think where the more novel fees come into place are when you're dealing with something project that has some sort of complexity to it, right? So I mentioned construction fee earlier, and that was because that client was managing the construction themselves because they had that previous experience. So they didn't have to hire anyone to manage all the contractors and subcontractors and the construction crew because they were doing it themselves and they were doing it for cheaper than market. So they charged a fee for that. Another one I saw was someone charging a licensing fee because basically it was one of those deals where in order for the project to be successful, they had to go get certain licensing from the local government. And it was very complex license to get. They had a lot of experience doing it, right? So instead of going out, hiring a third party, bringing a partner into a deal that was like really good at getting that particular sort of license, they went to do it themselves. And so they compensated themselves for it. I want us to have time for the distributions and waterfalls and those things. So we better yeah. move on. Sure. So investor distributions. So there's a hundred thousand ways you can structure these things. I'm just going to We're going to go about... through each one individually. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to talk about the three most common ones, right? So the most common is what we call pro rata. And pro rata is basically a fancy Latin word that basically means proportional. So under a pro rata distribution model, the distributions are basically given to investors proportionally according to their membership interest and basically comes back to how much did they invest, right? So I would say on average, the median distribution for investors in terms of the splits is somewhere between 70-30 split. So 70% to investors, pro rata, 30% to the sponsor. There's usually about a 10% standard deviation. So it can go anywhere 60-40 to 80-20. Next one is preferred return followed by a split. And here, preferred return, some people call it a pref or whatever, right? But it's basically distributable cash is first distributed to certain members, usually the investors, until they achieve a certain rate of return on the initial investment. And it's before any other group, for example, a sponsor receives any money, right? So investors receive money first up to a certain rate of return. Then after that is followed by whatever that split is, if it's 70-30 or whatever. So the PREF basically incentivizes investors since it subordinates the sponsored's profit participation or their promote. When you are using a preferred return, you should be careful to specify whether it's a cumulative preferred return and whether it's um, compounded or not. And then the next one that is very common, but we have to be very careful in in terms of how we word it is the preferred return included in the split. So the one I just talked about is preferred return first, then everything after that split. Here, the preferred return is included in the split, right? So basically, the investor members first receive their preferred return, and then all the money that's left it goes to everyone pro rata, but whatever you already received in terms of your preferred return is included in that 
right? So basically investors, the idea is, is investors get a little bit less than the previous scenario. Does that make sense? A little bit. I'd like to go back and kind of clarify a couple things. Yeah. I was going to go back like to the Parada and the Pref preferred return also, but they both have a split, but the, let's see, the Parada distribution model, it's, it's per membership interest, but is if I mean, we still give them a Pref and it's still per membership interest as far as, uh, not the Pref, but they're, they're still a split. I want you to explain it. <laughs> I'm, getting, I'm confusing myself now. They both have a split, but it's not the preferred return if it's the Pareto distribution. Okay. So again, there's a number of ways to structure these things, right? So pro rata means whatever the distributable cash is. Okay. If it's $100, right? And you had one investor of the amount you receive, right? You have one investor who invested 50%, one invested 30%, one invested 20%. And let's say it's a scenario where the sponsor, the manager gets 20 and the investors get 70, right? So there are no prep here at all. Pro rata just means according to their membership interest, right? Of that $100, I said 80, 20, right? So of the $100, $20 will go to the sponsor and the remaining $80 will go to the investors based on how much they invested, right? So for the guy who invested 50%, they're going to get $40 and then 30% of the $80 will go to the other guy and 20% of the $80 will go to the, the last person. Does that make sense? Yes. That's, yeah, yeah. That's good. <laughs> I was confused about the Parada distribution model, but no. And then you have the preferred so, return, which I think is probably, is that the most commonly used, the preferred return? I think the preferred return followed by a split is probably the most common, followed by pro rata and then the third one I talked about. But really, these are the three most common. And then after that, you can get as fancy as you want, right? So I think on a previous show, I mentioned like, I know people who do triple waterfalls, right? Yeah, sure. It, it makes the accounting like a pain sometimes, but it almost works the same way in the sense that, and partially, I think it's like a marketing tool for them because they say, hey, like you can get the way like their triple waterfall works, right? It's, oh, we have an 8% preferred return and thereafter it's a 70-30 split until everyone gets to a 15% preferred return. Once investors receive a 15% rate of return, then it becomes a 60-40 split until you receive a 25% rate of return and thereafter it's a 50-50 split, right? So it's actually good for them because they as a sponsor are incentivized to go and maximize the distributions because then they earn more, right? But at the same time, it's also half a marketing thing to the investors being like, oh, these guys are so confident that they'll get us over a 25% rate of return. That's great. And it's a way to you could possibly offer more money to investors initially. Yeah. So I could see that being a way to draw investors also that you're going to make this type of return until we reach this level. But I could see that bringing in more investors, possibly. I've seen crazy things. Like I think I mentioned on a previous show, I had a beginning syndicator who offered a 16% preferred return. They did not get paid at all until investors got a 16% rate of return, right? And then after that, 
it was a preferred return included in a split. So then the sponsor would get paid, but that sure made investors feel pretty good. So I've seen everything across the spectrum. And when it comes to distributions, half of it is what's market. Half of it is what are your investors willing to accept? And so this is, I often say this is not something that should be decided on by your attorney. This is something that will be decided on by yourself and your investors, right? Not necessarily through a negotiation because you don't want to get into that habit. It's what can you command from the market? And obviously the better returns you give, the more people are going to invest, right? The lower returns you give, the harder it is to get capital in. Sure. (laughs) Good stuff. I appreciate you explaining at least those three different types of of distributions and the waterfall. It's good. Yeah, definitely. So anything else that, I mean, as far as dealing with the debt and equity and how we structure it that we should know about before we move on to taking the money from investors? No, but I will just say that when you're raising capital, you have to set a minimum amount that you're raising and a maximum amount, right? Or sorry, you don't have to. Most people do, right? You don't want those two numbers to be too far apart from each other because if you're saying, oh, I want to raise a minimum of $100 and a maximum of $3 million, right? First of all, it doesn't really look good to your investors. And, and secondly, if you actually raise the $100, and you only have one investor, like all the distributions are going to go to that $100 investor. And, and that's not great for you either. So there is a point at which it does not make sense for you to syndicate the deal, right? Because you'll probably be losing money. And so what I tell people is when you're deciding on what your minimum maximum is, the minimum is what is the least amount of money you need to make this deal work, right? And the maximum is what is your ideal amount of money you would raise? And that gives you a good amount of cushion. That's good. Taking money from investors. You had mentioned giving them the cushion. Wait a minute. Say that last part again. I wanted to make sure I understood that again. When you're setting your maximum amount that you're raising, you want to set that amount at the ideal amount you'd like to raise, plus a little bit of cushion. At the same time, remember, don't make the cushion too big because the more money you raise, you really should be deploying that capital. And if you raise too much, then it kind of ends up lowering the ROI people get um, a couple years later, right? And people love bragging about their ROIs. Like, oh, like I make my investors like 40% return on investment. Oh, everyone should come to me, right? And right. so, yeah, just, just keep that in mind. Awesome. Just raise what you need. So what else should I be asking you, Amy, that I haven't asked you? Well, Most of you are probably going to take money from investors through the traditional banking system, right? So you get wires or whatever. And to the extent you're doing that through a bank, you're fine. You're good. If you are talking to one of the recently wealthy and they're trying to give it to you in Bitcoin or crypto or something strange like that, you have to do an additional step that we call AML KYC, anti-money laundering, know your customer compliance. The reason you don't have to do it if you're taking a wire is because your bank already does that for you. That's basically built into the the traditional banking system. But if you're doing something more interesting, you're going to want to consult with your attorney on that. So we can take it, but we have to, there's ways that we have to go about it that are different than normal. 
Yeah, you just need to make sure that the source that you're taking it from isn't a money launderer or someone like selling like weapons or something like that. Someone on like one of these government watch lists. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Amy. Anything else that we need to know? Unfortunately, we're out of time again. I think we're good. Okay, Amy. Well, you know, tell the listeners again how they can get in touch with you and learn more about Bootstrap Legal. Sure. I'm Amy Waiwan. You can find me on social media, so Twitter, LinkedIn, whatever. And you can just go to bootstraplegal.com and book a consultation if you have any questions. And I want to make sure the listeners know that they can go to our Facebook group and they can ask questions. And so all the shows are posted there. And so I encourage people to, if you think of a question that I didn't have time to answer or didn't get to, that you can go there and you can ask questions. And I try to post the future guests so you can even ask questions ahead of time. And I'll try to ask some of them uh, during the show. And then also, but afterwards, you can go on there and leave questions and I'll try to get you answers or I'll communicate with the guests. And so they can reach back out and let everybody know the answer to that question. But also go to LifeBridge Capital and connect with me. And then uh, we will talk to each of you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Syndication Show, brought to you by LifeBridge Capital. LifeBridge Capital works with investors nationwide to invest in real estate, while also donating 50% of its profits to assist parents who are committing to adoption. LifeBridge Capital, making a difference, one investor and one child at a time. Connect online at www.lifebridgecapital.com for free material and videos to further your success.